Welcome to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How we consume it and how it informs our everyday culture. I'm Christian Sager, a writer and a designer. And I'm Charlie Bennett, a librarian and a radio raconteur. Each episode is us trying to understand the entertainment world that we all live in. Just a little bit better. Today's episode is about Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. This podcast ran independently for four years, from 2016 to 2020. We reflect back on our goals in creating it and how successful those were, while trying to be transparent about the ins and outs of podcast production, marketing, and monetization. Thank you for listening. This is our last regular episode, and uh, I really don't know how else to introduce it. have a headache oh yeah what's going on it's like a pillow <laughs> uh <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no it's just allergies and sinuses i don't know if it's the same in atlanta but apparently the pollen's like way worse than it normally is because when, when i go much... outside yeah, I, yeah. I don't have too much of an allergy but yeah the particulate matter itself is overwhelming yeah so have you felt like there's a lot of animal activity there's a lot like have you felt the mm-hmm. sort of pressure of nature. Yep. Oh yeah. There's uh, I've, I've read about this as well, that there are like not feral, but like wild animals encroaching on the city that normally wouldn't because there's left tra- less traffic, yeah. like yeah, coyotes and stuff like and that. that yeah. yeah. The feral cats in our neighborhood have been more active than ever since we moved here. Yeah. Yeah. Such a weird fucking time, man. Love it. Loving it. Yeah. I read I read a (laughs) short story last night before I went to bed. Classic this is a classic super context story. It was a real bad idea. I picked up the best of the best horror of the year, the Ellen Datlow collection that collects the best of all the stories that she's done in like the previous ten volumes. But I thought you thought it was a good idea to get that in your blood and in your head and make you all whack. It is, right? Uh why horror? We'll talk about that later today, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah I inoculated myself too hard last <laughs> night <laughs> accidentally. Too many, too many shots at once, too many vaccines. Yeah. So I sat down and I was like, I'll, I'll read the first story in here. I haven't read it yet. And it's by a person named Susie McKee Charnas. And the story is called Lowland Sea. And I haven't read anything about it yet, but my perspective on it was that it was like an homage to Mask of the Red Death. Uh-huh. And so the idea is that there is a plague and uh, the plague is called the red sweats and anybody who gets it starts bleeding through their pores and then they eventually die from the Are illness. Are you a night sweater? <laughs> no, I'm not. Okay. I'm not. Wait, it uh it's very relevant. Uh <laughs> all the rich people go and close themselves up in their houses and the story is from the perspective of a woman who works for a rich actor. You are fucking kidding me. And he brings his entourage to like a castle that he owns in the south of France and they lock themselves up in there and over the weeks everybody on the outside seems to be dying and they lose contact with the world they start running out of supplies and they send this woman out 
to go find out what's going on because she's like the lowest of the pecking order right, in the right, house. Right. And she goes out and she wanders around and the world is basically gone. And uh, she contracts the red sweats while she's out there. And she comes back. She asks to be let back in. They won't let her back in because they see the red sweats. So she sneaks back into the house at <laughs> night and she purposely drowns herself in the well water yep. that they're all using. So mm -hmm. they all get the disease. And I was like, mm, too close to home right now. <laughs> too close to home. You ever see the movie Flesh and Bone? No. Uh, with Rutger Hauer. Oh. Yeah. Tell me more. Um, I don't want to ruin anything, except there is a, a significant bit about um, plague-ridden flesh being flung into a castle. Oh, nice. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I think we're almost at that point. No. No, it'll take at least another three weeks of no toilet paper. Um, so I saw you have Gold Peak. Is that right? You're doing, uh, yeah. what do you, What did you sugar up yeah, on? Yeah, I'm, I'm peaking. Uh, Gold Peak unsweetened and Reese's, I got four peanut butter cups here at nine in the morning, you know, as you <laughs> yeah. do. Uh, I, I have eaten three mini donuts, um, nice. cinnamon sugar mini donuts that uh, my wife and yeah, but knowing uh, your family, the they probably baked. didn't use like real sugar or something like that, right? We used real sugar. We just didn't mm. use high fructose corn syrup. Oh, see? Yeah. You're not going to get as wired <laughs> as I am. You know, I really did want to go and like indulge in the whole, uh, you know, uh, sugar, sugar sweats, I guess, of mm -hmm. uh, early super context. But also, I wasn't willing to go into a gas station and touch a bunch of stuff uh, at this really? moment in time. What are you doing when you need gas? When have I needed gas, man? What do you do when you go to the grocery store? Uh, we don't. We don't go to the grocery store. What, do you just eat in the grass out of your backyard? What is that's, this hippie bullshit? That's exactly right. Yeah, we've been stripping the bark right off the tree. No, we, we've used uh, grocery delivery services. Oh, yeah. you mean like the rich people who stay inside their castles to get away from the red sweats yeah, i see how that's it is right. that's what we've done like rich people in a castle no really we're using, we're i've gone local delivery services i've gone to the grocery store once a week since this has happened i have to that's like a, an adventure i fully yeah. suit up and uh i've refilled exactly. the gas a couple of times so last night i just i was on my way back and i had to get gas and i i thought about getting an ice cream sandwich to make it real authentic but you know it would have melted so yeah Here's the thing. If Casey and I get sick, it's not a question of can we recover? The children are going to go feral. If we both get sick enough that we can't take this care of the kids. This is a classic super context, everybody, where Charlie explains to me what it's like to be a parent. I'm not even explaining to you what it's like <laughs> to be a parent. I'm explaining to you the logic. You stupid idiot. This is why. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like maybe the stupid idiot part is you here. You know what? I, I completely forgot. We haven't done any sinking yet. No, we haven't. We gotta, come on. We, let's get the... We can do the sinking after let's get this. this. No, no. Let's just get this done right now. Then we can okay. start the episode for real. Okay. 10, 9, 8, 7, seven 6, six five, 5, 4, four three, 3, 2, 1. I was doing all that for the audience. I, I thought you were too. I don't understand why you think that I'm doing it for the audience too. I don't understand why you think uh, that uh, me explaining to you what I am doing is somehow me saying that you're an idiot for not uh, being a parent. Uh, that's just how I live my life. Is you it? You know, 
Is it how you live your life? How did we ever get this far if this is how you live your life? (laughs) I can feel the sugar flowing through me, Chris. I can feel my faux irritation really cranking up. You know what? It's time. I'm going to crack open the first. The king size Reese's peanut butter cups. I love it. I am uh, all jacked up on coffee and cinnamon donuts. And also, just the idea of the world right now. This is Here's how stupid things are. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. We're having a dishwasher installed. Mm-hmm. So we've removed the whole kitchen from the kitchen. You know, like all the stuff's off the counters and away from where yeah, the dishwasher's going. It's a great time to do it. Yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, it's, it's also a great time to not have a dishwasher, which is where we were headed. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so again, we're down, again with the Mask of the Red Death. Yeah, we're all down in the, in the basement. And, uh, you know, Casey's set up on the stairs so she can go and talk to the guy she's got her mask he's got his mask yeah it's just it's just a weird fucking time so they're just pulling the old dishwasher out and putting a new one in here's the conf this is actually you'll like this um i found a plumber in portland who does some kind of blog and so i found the information from him are they also a stripper yes that sounds uh, very portland (laughs) but uh our dishwasher was set up so it went straight into the the drain pipe with no like mm-hmm. through the sink thing yeah and when i googled that i found this portland plumber uh on his blog saying no one would ever do that that's totally not code and it's stupid and for a minute there i thought what is going on and then i realized oh wait no georgia right to different states yeah, yeah southern mm-hmm. do what you want kind of thing mm-hmm no, now, Oregon is very yeah. fastidious about that stuff. Exactly. Well, now uh, Georgia has caught up with me because Home Depot and Lowe's and all those companies, they won't do it unless it's everything's up to what is code in other places. Like mm. they won't let their workers go into crawl spaces, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So we have an, a plumber, like a for real, you know, T and G, whatever, uh, in there i don't even know what he's doing he's like adding a vent line and he's probably adding the pipes that you didn't have to the drain he's not gonna then you can attach the he's not gonna pop them through the sink wall though because this is sexy podcasting talking about dishwashing and home repair yeah (laughs) let's i'm kind of already tired of it to be honest no let me take my pants off (laughs) (laughs) i think i can cut this together in a way that'll be okay Well, dude, I'm ready. Are you ready? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. I think my headache is receding. Fantastic. It's more like a cushion rather than a pillow. (laughs) Yeah. I actually, like, there was a minute there where that was my theme song for the coronavirus pandemic. El Dopa. Yeah. It just felt like it was the right thing at the right time. Let me look up the lyrics. Did Did it fix you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, fixed me. All right. No, I was like, I have, I, I listen to that record a lot. And uh, I was like, the lyrics to Bad Penny are clearly about Donald Trump 30 years before Donald Trump <laughs> became the president. And then I was listening to this song the other day. I got a sickness, sweet as a love note. I got a headache like a pillow. Come on. Yeah, those are great. Totally about right now. What was that? I was just reading or watching something and it was like oh shit they knew what was coming i won't remember all right here we are chris it is the end of the line this is this is the final 
This is the final super context. It's the super context of super context, the super, super context. Yeah, we should probably explain to the listeners what we're doing, because I don't think we've we've hinted at this yet publicly. In a way, this is a unofficial episode because it's going up May 1st, which is the end, the the beginning of the uh, indefinite hiatus of super context. So it's going to be a little different, but we are going to approach the super context podcast with the super context circuit. Yeah. So we thought it would be fun to apply the same framework and research model to our own show that we've used on all the other media artifacts and kind of see like, it's a good way to remind ourselves of what we learned along the way. But also I think one of the goals for me in this is to be as transparent as possible with the audience. Now that we're done with the show, there's a lot of stuff that I think we were kind of cagey about on air just cause like we didn't want to share I wouldn't call it proprietary information, but, um, you know, what our strategies were behind the scenes. Yeah. So this is a wrap up in a way. It's not an autopsy because we're not going to like get deeply into, you know, how did it happen? Why is it not going on? But unless you find out that I've been dead the whole time. Uh, and the kids saw it all. You've just been doing a podcast with a ghost. (laughs) No one's done that podcast in a hundred (laughs) years. Okay. So what is Super Context? Super Context is a media podcast, and it was active from 2016 until 2020. I didn't know this until yesterday. We recorded 208 regular episodes, and then I would guess... 208 regular episodes? I thought this was 202. Well, uh, when I was going through my files, it said 208. So maybe that's including minisodes? Oh, the dead podcasts. Oh, yeah. The episodes that we... Yeah, that's yeah, probably what it was. Okay. Got it. Um, so we've done a, a ton of minisodes and some actual super context, super king context, excuse me, episodes. Uh, and we are a podcast autopsy of media, how we consume it and how it informs our everyday culture. Here is when we can finally talk about it, Chris. You don't like the serial comma. You leave out uh, the Oxford comma. Hated. And like uh, the last job that I had, they were f- borderline fascistic about using the Oxford comma uh, to the point that like I started like messing around with everybody by like sending around T-shirts that said death to the Oxford comma stuff like that. But yes, it, I'm it, not do a you fan. Have a simple explanation of why you don't like it. It, you know, everybody who tells me why it's grammatically correct, I understand them. But the fact of the matter is, is that almost all of the prose fiction that I've read since I've been alive hasn't used the Oxford comma. Uh And so to me, it doesn't make sense to make that pause before and and then continue on because and in itself is the pause and the two spaces around it are silences. Gotcha. Uh, for me, it is about um, a, a, an abundance of clarity. Um, and the reason I'm talking about this is because the sentence, a podcast autopsy of media, comma, how we consume it and how it informs our everyday culture. It always bothered the shit out of me because it was missing an Oxford comma. Oh, so you I, are, you're into I the am, Oxford comma. I am the opposite of you. I hate Fuck. the lack of a serial comma. Ugh. So whenever I have typed that, I always type podcast autopsy of media, colon, how we consume it and how it informs our everyday culture. 
which allows me to leave out the comma and that still works too. have yeah. a, a sentence that works. Well, here's a fun fact about that that I forgot about. Yeah. We actually didn't record that until our fourth episode. Um, here's a, to- a thing that I totally forgot about that maybe the audience doesn't know. We recorded three episodes of the show before we ever published an episode. Yeah. Um, and we and, waited to publish those. Yeah, because we were like, we want to make sure that this is the best we can be. So we we did a couple of like, like not fake episodes, but like getting getting settled in tester, to the pattern. Yeah. Uh, and we eventually put, I think, all of those out when we like had like dead weeks where one of us was sick or something like that. I think that's true. I think there were three and we did put them all up. Uh, and one of them was an episode that made everyone say, don't do episodes like that anymore, please. Which one was it? True Detective season two? I think it was Yahoo Screen. <clears throat> was Yahoo Screen one of those episodes? Really? I thought so. Okay. Um, so who are we and how did we start this podcast? I'll start with you and then you start with me. Let's do gotcha. that. Okay. You are Charlie Bennett. Hello. And you're a librarian. And a radio raconteur, which so, is a phrase that I yeah, came up with. <laughs> radio raconteur was your uh, your written introduction for me, and I had yep. to say it. And yep. uh, I actually kind of like it. I mean, a radio <laughs> storyteller. Okay, it's super cool. pretentious, though. Why did you decide that radio raconteur was the way to define me? Uh, I knew how much you liked William S. Burroughs. Uh, <laughs> and William S. Burroughs is a big fan of the word raconteur. Yeah. And so I was like, I need to come up with a good way to describe what Charlie does with the radio and podcast stuff that he does outside of outside of his day job. So that that seemed to work. So quick origin story for librarian. Um, I went to Georgia Tech as an undergrad a long time ago, and uh, I stayed to get a second degree and to pay for that. I started working at the Georgia Tech Library as a student assistant. I got hey, Charlie, how long did it take you to get that second degree? Two years. I'm sorry, sorry, the first one, I mean. Eight years. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I dragged I dragged out that uh, first one a you, long you've time. You've told the audience that before on the show. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, yeah, I dropped out, um, I think technically only once, but uh, in my mind several times. <laughs> and uh, so... I worked at the library as a student and I started working full time there by like 98 and uh, I got my second degree while working full time and getting tuition remission and the whole thing. And uh, I left briefly, met you in Boston. Yeah. Although you barely remember that. Yeah. And 9-11 happened, which I do remember. And then I escaped. I jeted back to Atlanta and got my job back. And then um, over the course of 10 years, I was, I guess, groomed really to be a librarian and I got mm-hmm. my library degree and my library job, my librarian job in 2011. And, um, it, because I'm a librarian and because you worked in a library when you came to Atlanta, that yeah. is how we reconnected. So I had visited Atlanta and seen Charlie once before I moved to Atlanta and you were pretty drunk that time. Oh yeah. Do you remember that? Not really. We were, what's that place with the Iron Maiden logo in East Atlanta? Righteous Room. Uh, no, no, that's where we went afterwards. Oh. The time that I came to visit, we went to the place in East Atlanta at the corner of Memorial. Uh, where it, they, Their logo, I think it's like Iron something. Huh, okay. Anyway. Oh, the see, flat that, iron. Flat there iron. you go. Yes. Yeah. That's how drunk you were. Did we go to the... <laughs> I don't remember the Flatiron. Yeah, we had dinner at the Flatiron one night. No, that doesn't sound right at all. Um, okay. 
And, and then it was very hard to stay in touch with me, wasn't I it? I moved to Atlanta and I wrote you and I said, hey, I'm going to live in the same city as you now. We should hang out. And I never heard back. And four years went by and I started working at the library at Georgia State. And we were at some library Atlanta Library Interconnected Community thing. Do you remember yeah, what it was? It was a research symposium. Was it? Yeah. And uh, it was in my building, so I, I dropped in, and I was like, oh, shit, there's Charlie Bennett, and said hi to you. And that's how we got back in touch. And I actually had clear eyes at that point. Did you? I did. <laughs> and I, I think did. like we started hanging out again after that, and the rest is history. But it was really like... God, like eight years after that, that we started doing the podcast together. Yeah, because over the course of nine, eight years, um, I was building my radio and podcasting sort of uh, second set of skills, uh, mm -hmm. doing a library radio show, working at WRK Atlanta, uh, trying out various podcasts, and you coming over and being on Lost in the Stacks, and us mm -hmm. having time to chat and talk about production and talk about... Uh, what interested you and all that, that's really what got, I think, got the idea past just fantasy that we yeah. could work together. I think I was on Lost in the Stacks like three times maybe. And then yeah. you interviewed me and Eric for something. Was it North Avenue that was Lounge? North Avenue Lounge, yeah. Okay, yeah. Did that ever go out on the air? I don't remember. Okay. It was a, it was a really hard editing job. And I'll have to go back in the files and see if I found that. Um, and then, yeah, so then I started working in podcasting and right around that time you were teaching a class at the Atlanta zine symposium that was about how to start your podcast. Yeah. I did a workshop. Yeah. Like a drop in. And I uh, was like, oh, cool. Uh, I want to go check out the zine thing anyways. I'll go to Charlie's class. And uh, also, um, Ian's Fanonius from Makeup was playing a show at that thing. So I was like mildly curious about seeing that and watched you present your class. And then you and I basically chatted afterwards about like how podcasts work. How shows work too, right? Because yeah. that was the main thing about that workshop is that I wasn't talking about here's how you record. I was talking about here's how you develop right. a show, a show yeah. idea. Yeah. So for my part, uh, I, I'm not going to go all the way back, but so I was working at a, a library at Georgia State University Library as their creative manager, but I was also writing freelance. So I had I had written my own comics already and I had worked for CNN. Thanks to Charlie. Charlie introduced <laughs> me to an old classmate of his who was my editor at CNN. And I wrote about comics and geek culture at CNN for about a year and then that led to me getting hired at How Stuff Works to be like a new host. They already had like all their shows pretty much set up. But they're like, we need somebody else to come in and do these videos. Yeah, you were doing a lot of video work at first. It was, yeah, it was all video. I wasn't a podcast host at first. Um, and I think I did, let's see, the first year I did Stuff of Genius, the second year I did Brain Stuff, and then... Robert Lamb asked me if I would join him on stuff to blow your mind. And so now, I hopped I, on that. We missed, we missed an opportunity that we need to take uh, advantage oh. of right now. Yeah. You're Christian Sager. Here I am. And a designer. And a designer. <laughs> I don't know why I felt like I had to say it that way. Yeah. Why did you choose those two credits? 
I think because at the time I was also doing all the design work and art for us. So remember, I used to hand draw all of the episode art for the show. And um, I did all of the design on like the Libsyn site and everything. Not there is nothing fancy, but uh, I had worked as a designer for probably a decade before that. I very rarely do design work now. It was just your the expertise you had being applied to the podcast production that made you then start thinking yeah i guess i will introduce myself as a writer and a designer i guess because i i was writing professionally and i was uh doing visual work professionally too yeah like visual commercial art and this um let's be honest about it this podcast was your idea yeah so when i was first hired at how stuff works they asked me as part of the interview process to pitch two shows to them that I would do if I could if I could do anything under their banner and one of the shows I pitched was called stuff behind the curtain and it was essentially super context uh, I knew that I wanted to use the circuit of culture model that was something that I had experience with from graduate school and working on my thesis and I felt like it was a really good opportunity to do a media show that was different from all of the other media podcasts and videos that were out there. How Stuff Works had a media show. Did you know this? They had one before I I started there. It was called Pop Stuff, and it was oh the t- yeah I the did two know women that. who yes, host yes. Uh, the history show now they hosted it, uh, Holly and Tracy, and they. You know, I listened to a couple of those episodes, but they basically just like would go in and shoot the shit about a yeah. topic. It wasn't like another How Stuff Works episode where there was like a ton of research, which was unusual. And I guess after like a year, it didn't really garner enough attention. And so they they dropped it. Um, and I was like, here's how I think we should do it, like research based. So it would be more like the other shows on this network. And they liked the idea, but they didn't go with it. But they hired me. So they hired me to work on their pre-existing stuff. So that kind of sat on a shelf for a year or two. And the the core of what you wanted to do differently was you wanted to make sure it was not just shooting the shit. It was not just opinion. It was not just appreciation. You wanted mm-hmm. to get into, well, you know, what the tagline is, like how it's made, why it's yeah. made that way. Yeah, I've said this a couple of times on our show, but... When I first started listening to the podcast, How Did This Get Made? I thought it was literal that they were going to tell you how this thing got made. And uh, they didn't they don't really do that on the show. It's a great podcast. I still listen to it, but that's not that's not its mission. And I was like, somebody should do that. Uh, And then I, I tried pitching it several times. Now, before I ask you, why did you choose me? I want to set this up um, by saying when you came to me with this idea, Mm. it it took me. It took me a couple conversational beats to get my head around it, right? Because I had been doing a lot of either uh, panel-style radio shows or interview-style radio shows or podcasts, and one sort of improv shoot-the-shit podcast that I did with Pete. Um, A lot of us at Tech, where I had learned a lot about production and learned a lot about editing, um, and we were not doing like... Hey, what did you think of this book? Or what did you think of this movie? But we were just kind of saying whatever came to mind just about Gavin. these yeah. higher education topics. Mm-hmm. But when I finally figured out what you were trying to, you know, what you were pitching to me, your 
clarity of vision and your preparation, even before we really started talking about literally doing the podcast, had me sold. I was like, cool, here is a leader that I will follow into battle on <laughs> this one. Be- because I had been doing, I had been the one in charge yeah. of the three other shows I had done. And there were some, some things I had not learned. There were some mm-hmm. things I was not good at. And, uh, and it seemed like you were good at those. Mm, that remains to be seen after four years, but we'll, we'll, we'll reevaluate those it's things totally as we go true along. That you seemed like you were, <laughs> it seemed like I was probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I basically had like a pitch sheet put together because I had, I had put it together for that company. And then I think I had pitched it again later on to their executive producer and she was just kind of like, eh. And they never, they never showed any interest in it. I even tried to weasel it in as like a backdoor pilot into brain stuff. If you go back and you watch some old brain stuff videos, there's a faux super context in there somewhere. Yeah. There's a, um, we did this maybe three episodes worth called popcorn edition of brain stuff where it was all about pop culture and media. Um, like I think we did one episode that was like, and this it was to show you how different things were five years ago. It was like, why aren't there any uh, lead female superhero movies where we like just spent their time talking about why Black Widow didn't have a movie. And now here we are. And she's right, supposed right. to have a movie this year. Um, but yeah, so it was stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I guess I guess the next bit to say is that we, the way we split up the work was I did the research, even though you're the librarian. And you did the production. Yeah, because I was I was doing, I was still doing shows. Yeah. I was still doing Consilience, um, and North Avenue Lounge, and Lost in the Stacks. And so I, I kind of, I think I said, I'd love to do it. I don't know how much pre-production work I can put into it, but yeah. I'd be delighted to go on this adventure with you. Yeah, the idea was that I would do the front end work. We would record it together. And then you would do the the back end work, and then I would do a quality assurance listen to what you had done, and then we would publish. And that's basically yeah. what we've done for four years. And it's really worked quite well. And the uh, the back end work in a lot of ways is just um, treating the audio, you know, doing a little compression, a little EQing, and putting an intro and an outro on there, and um, inserting ads or breaks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. So we did roughly eight to 10 hours of work for each episode. Each is my, my estimate. Yeah. And, and uh, roughly two of those hours is both of us working just recording. on the yeah. episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I did the math and I figured out cause with the, we, the show is the most successful right now as we are ending it <laughs> and we are currently making $3 an hour working on this show. Yeah, I think you do a few more hours of work, uh, at Possibly. least a few more hours of work a month, if not a week. Um, maybe, maybe. Especially because I've streamlined the production, um, the edit time as much as I yeah. can. I've learned a lot of tricks. And I- I'll tell you this, now that we're ending it, I feel this massive sort of work relief. Yeah. Like yeah. there was, there was so, I, because also I'm shutting down some other audio projects and making sure that I have a very clear workspace, a very clear professional space. Yeah. But the kind of, you know, it's very cool 
to do a show and the show must go on and you got to get it up and, and all that. But it's also the, um, the most stressful regular thing that I've ever dealt with. Every single week for the last four years, we've had to think about this show. Yeah. Even the weeks that we didn't have an episode coming That's out. right. We had to plan to not do the show or yeah. there have been a couple scramble moments. I think there was a lost audio track at one point and there was also a week where one of us said, oh God, I'm not feeling good about this week. And the other one said, oh, thank God, let's not do an episode. Well, you know, it's funny because I think about this in retrospect to the company I used to work for. And a lot of those podcasters are very congratulatory about the fact that like they've never uh missed a week like they always put out a new episode every week right. and my thought was yes but you're getting paid a salary to do that and we were not getting yeah, paid a salary we, to we do both this show to jobs to go with this I mean, yeah like, i've always wanted my podcast or radio work to be um avocational in order to uh, somehow be a lift be cool yeah. to be um something for me something that uh is what i want to do and then and then we created a job and it was still cool it, it was what i wanted to do but it did take away one bit of that freedom but that is absolutely what we did we created a job and i i think we're being transparent about this not to be like oh what was us it was so hard for the last four years because it wasn't but um the original idea was we're going to do this show for a year and then we're going to sell it and we will, this will be our day job. Super, super context will be good enough that a podcast network, if not how stuff works, will say, yes, you've shown us proof that you know how to do this and uh, we will hire you. We will do the ad sales. You guys just produce the episodes and you and I would earn a living yeah. doing a show like this. And this is partly why you were tasked with most of the research because I could carve out the time to come and do a recording and do production, but sort of the the show direction and preparation that was what was going to operate as your day job yeah yeah uh, we'll get into that a little bit more um i have a list here of all the guests that were on the show i when i think about it in my head i'm like yeah we had like three guests no. and it was way more than that we had some cool people too yeah so jack bennett was a guest on the show twice swain hunt was a guest on the show twice Kristen conger joined us we interviewed benjamin mara Allison McManus joined us for the uh, Laura Jane Grace episode. That's right. Uh, David Harper and Augie DeBleek joined us for one episode. We interviewed Comics Ed journalism. Pisker. Yeah. We interviewed Ed Pisker about X-Men. Robert Lamb joined us uh, for the last episode. I think we had a guest that we had a guest for in Atlanta. No, that was Van. Because yeah. Van Jensen was the last episode uh, in Atlanta. Tim Rutilli. I guess that was more of an interview than a guest. That was an interview, yeah. And then uh, here, so after we got everything set up here on the West Coast, Emily Lewis and Dave Moore joined us. And that was one of the nicer things about this show um, is that it could expand uh, to accommodate a guest. Yeah. Either yeah. guest host or... I, mean, I had a lot of fun figuring out how to do those interviews. Like, how, yeah. how do we craft the intro and outro around an interview so it still does the super context work you know and i look back on both the pisker and the mara episodes as some of our best comics episodes because i i think we were approaching the topic in a way that no other comics journalist approaches it and we were talking to ben and ed about things uh that nobody asks them questions about 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... I think they said that too. Like they appreciated the the delivery of the interview. And I've I've heard anecdotally over the years, like those are some of the episodes that really drove comic book fans to listen to our show. And some I, I know there are some listeners who only tune in just for the comics episodes because they like how we approach talking about comics. Um, but yeah, if we could have done it, I would have liked to have done a lot more of those interviews. Yeah, our build up. Uh, in the way that we handled guests got kind of um, reset when we went when to cross product uh, cross yeah. country production. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you've listened to the show for a while, folks, you know the pattern. Like we start every episode with a "What is this?" Then we do production, consumption, representation, regulation if there is any, which there rarely is, and then we talk about identity and themes. And that is not something we came up with. That is a model uh, for cultural studies that was developed in a book that was published in 1997 called Doing Cultural Studies, The Story of the Sony Walkman. Uh, and it is by a guy whose last name is Duguay. I actually don't know what Duguay's first name is all this time. I'm still <laughs> unaware of his first name. Um, but this book apparently developed the idea so they could talk about the Sony Walkman. The theory was devised by a group of theorists, not just Duguay, and it suggests that when you're stutter studying any cultural text or artifact, you have to look at those five aspects to fully get the picture. And when you take them, then you're getting what they call the circuit of culture through which any analysis of a cultural text must pass if it is to be adequately studied. And so a cultural text in this context is something like the Walkman or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, design of a city street or whatever, you know, like this is, this is some hardcore theory. Mm -hmm. We took this and applied it to, um, media, popular media, right? The entertainment world. Yeah. Um, and we alternated usually in a good pattern, but sometimes we doubled up. We alternated between film, television, prose, audio, and comics. And audio was kind of a catch-all for like, you know, speeches or um, yeah. monologues or comedy or music or whatever. Yeah. So we tried to alternate those five topics every five weeks. And sometimes we weren't successful at that because we had to re rearrange the schedule. Yeah, I mean, we planned it all out. But then yeah. if, uh, <laughs> if we ran into a text that was hard to... Um, acquire or hard to uh -huh. read. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. The books really were like three times the work of any of the other episodes. Um, and the, so yeah, the idea was like every month or so you would get one of those topics. If you, if you only liked one particular thing to hear about, like you were like, ah, I don't give a shit about music. I just want to hear about comics or right. we'd, we'd catch I only like books. Once. Yeah. yeah. And so we tried this was the goal right from the beginning. The goal was to make the show compelling enough so that if somebody listened to an episode because they liked the subject it was about, they would then come back and listen to episodes they didn't know anything about. So they would be like, I, I'm interested in the process and what these two hosts have to say more than I am in like celebrating something I'm already familiar with. Yeah. And to that end, we kind of, um, stripped away any content analysis by the by the end of our run 
tried to tried to I don't think we were great at that either I mean I think we slid back and forth into that that's one of the themes we'll touch on at the end yeah yeah but I I remember we spent a lot more time on story early mm-hmm. on in the run than we we did we do now yeah oh yeah I was looking at the notes yesterday for the first like years worth of episodes and we were all over the place um <laughs> We really, even though we were using the circuit of culture, we really weren't pinning it down the way that we did later on. I think it's, it's funny because like that first year was the test year for us to get up to the point where we could then subsequently say, Hey, we're professional. Like somebody buy this. And I think it, it's true. It took us about a year to get really on point. Um, and the, the first year we, we started in May of 2016 having no idea what was going to happen that year. (laughs) We thought Hillary Clinton was going to be president. And we laid out best practices for the show in December. And we said, like, these are the things we really need to stick to. We, We used to have these breakfasts. Charlie and I would get together for breakfast and we would have business meetings over breakfast before we went to work. And here's some of the things that I pulled from all our old business documents. We were going to try to make every episode someone's first episode. Uh, in, we were going to try to engage the audience as the third person that was always in the room with us and interact with them. I think I try to do that now just kind of uh, naturally, but I don't know. I don't know if I'm always successful at that. It's funny to read these best practices because I can recognize when I've done them and when yeah. I think about them, but all of them are pretty unnatural to me. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not thinking about it, I drop it. Like I... I am inclined to go for inside jokes. I am that inclined. is your thing. And yeah. that's part of the reason why we made these rules was to steer yeah. you on track. <laughs> and and the, the whole, like, remember to ask uh, listeners to subscribe, to mention the day the podcast go yeah. to, um, you know, to highlight that this is, uh, you know, rituals within like to say, yep. Hey, this is something that always happens. Always felt like, like I should be able to do it, but I couldn't. Like I was failing because of so, my inability or distaste to do those things. So this is the stuff that you were saying, like you felt like I was better at than you or I seemed I was better at. Well, you were certainly more aware and you were able to, you were able to catch these weak points. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, like here's <laughs> highlight our rituals. Every episode is one of our best practices. Mm-hmm. And in there is Charlie tells someone to go fuck themselves. Yeah, which is a it's like looking back four years later, it's like that was a dumb thing to try and hit every time. <laughs> you know? Yes, it was. But I was yeah. I was pretty angry, yeah. you know, like you were all the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And, and uh, you you I think for the first year, you, you still have this occasionally. But for the first year, you had a really hard time staying out of the subjective. I want to judge this and I want everybody to know what my opinion is yeah. about this thing. That had been how I'd been doing my my podcast consilience up to that point. I had been able to just be myself and um, and not have to handle you at all. <laughs> so w- the reason why I came up with some of these, we negotiated them, but the reason why these came up was because at work, I was forced to take the YouTube certification program, which was basically, I don't know if it still exists, but it was basically this online class that you take from Google 
Um, and it's hard. It's not easy. And it's basically like you are certified to make YouTube videos, not only that you like know how to upload them and everything, but you understand the best practices, you understand the yeah. legalities, what you can and can't do. Uh, you understand the, the behind the scenes in terms of like what they'll censor you for and not. And a lot of those best practices were smart. Like the, the folks at Google, for the most part, had their heads on straight when it came to like, this is what works. Trust us. We know. Like we have all the numbers. We know what shows are working and what shows aren't. This is what we recommend that you do. And so that's where we ended up getting a lot of this stuff from. Um, like, for instance, always mentioning the day that we publish the podcast. I still watch YouTube videos where the host is like, yeah, we put out episodes every Thursday. You know, it's a yeah, it's just a thing to keep your engagement up. Now, some of the rituals that um, came to be naturally and usefully in the run of the podcast are um, let's see here's the notes for them and we'll go back and do each one after I, I list them what this isn't and then big book of the year Christmas ghost story episodes Alan Moore Grant Morrison and Warren Ellen Ellis once a year and then Lovecraft month um, so what this isn't some. I'm sure you did and uh, but these these feel right to me yeah so what this isn't is something that we started to insert into the episodes. This is not a review podcast. This is not a appreciation podcast mm-hmm. um, because we were having, I think some listeners pop in and then be like, Hey, this is not what I wanted and yep. wanted to get ahead of that. Uh, then the big book of the year, interestingly enough happened because we did inherent vice, the film. Yeah. And when one of my uh, old professor's new peers at Georgia Tech heard the Inherent Vice episode, he said, hey, I'm doing a Gravity's Rainbow independent study. Uh, we might do Inherent Vice too because, you know, you talked about it. And I said, ooh, can I get in on that Gravity's Rainbow independent study? And during the year uh, 2017, I read uh, Gravity's Rainbow with some help. And then I said, we should do Gravity's Rainbow. And I think you said, oh, Jesus, Really? Because I had already attempted to read it twice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you read it this time. I did. Yeah. I read like one or two pages a day for the year. Although if you listen to that episode, I admit that I fell behind in the last month and I ended up really having to binge it. Yeah. So then we said we should do a big book at the end of each year. Mm-hmm. And that was that was nice. That kind of arrived on its own. And those were our most popular episodes. Yeah. Gravity's Rainbow, hands down, is our most popular episode. And then the second most popular is the Infinite Jest episode, which kills me because that's the one episode the that the audio, audio sucks yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you brought in Christmas Ghost Stories, which I love yeah. as a as a standard. Yeah, so we started that because we did MR James uh it wasn't the first year. I think it might have been the second year. No, no I think it, it was, was the first, first year. Because you were like, hey, for Christmas I want to do this thing. And okay, I, and I stupidly had the first reaction of a ghost story on Christmas. What's your problem? But then, yeah. of course, oh right, a Christmas Carol is a ghost story on Christmas. That's the yeah. whole point of that. Yeah, uh, and so we we kept up that tradition. We didn't really mean to do the Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, Warren Ellis thing. It was really just kind of after three years, we were like, oh hey, we keep doing this. Yeah, <laughs> we, we should probably formalize it in some way. And in fact, I uh, I learned over the run of this podcast that I like Warren Ellis. I don't like Grant Morrison. I mean, their work. I like Warren Ellis's yeah. work. I don't like Grant Morrison's work, which is funny because I thought it was the opposite. Mm-hmm. And I have 
deepened my understanding and appreciation of Alan Moore. And I'm very pleased about that. Yeah, I think for me, those are like three of my go-tos. They're big influences on my writing. And I wanted to understand more about them and their work and their personalities because let's be honest, like their public personas can be grating. And so I was trying to unpack like what the persona was versus the work that I really enjoyed. Yeah. Speaking of grading personas, we said over and over again, we would not do a Lovecraft episode. We're not you doing HP Lovecraft. You said over and over We're not again. Doing HP Lovecraft. Yeah, but you agreed <laughs> with me each time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And eventually we finally um, did a Lovecraft month where we did Lovecraft adjacent uh, episodes for yeah. his birthday month. And I, the reason that came up is this accidentally became a horror podcast. Um, so because of my interests, we ended up doing probably one horror object within those five week cycles every time. And horror listeners started getting yeah. into the show. We started seeing it both in the comments that we were getting, but also in the like shows other shows that people who listen to this it was like all horror podcasts someone literally recommended super context on their like horror fan bulletin board saying hey it's an interesting show because one guy is a horror fan and the other one is not but soldiers through each episode Mm -hmm. which and i am the not um and so like that was one of the clearest examples of when our uh our friendship and our faux um, antagonism as hosts and our uh, our legendary banter um, really showed that that was a thing that people connected to listening yeah. to Super Context. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the, when we ended up doing Lovecraft Month, it was basically, it, it was like, well, all right, at this point, like... <laughs> We are a yeah. horror podcast. Most People of our listeners mentioned Lovecraft. They yeah. want some Lovecraft content. Might as well do it for a whole month. Yeah. Because then we didn't have to do Lovecraft. We could do yeah, Lovecraftian too. stuff. Um, and so now we're getting into the, the business model stuff. Okay. So the first year was us. It was sort of our proving ground. Like, hey, we can do this. And um, one of the, one of the practices that I got into from working for how stuff works was knowing that most podcast networks were looking for at least two ad breaks in the center mid roll ad breaks. And you, the, the direction that things were going at the time was dynamic advertising. So the idea was put those into your old episodes, even if you don't have ads to sell, and then you will be able to monetize those episodes later on because you'll be able to say, hey, here's a fucking Valvoline commercial. Yeah. And they would insert that Valvoline commercial in your first episode. So let me say that in a different way. If you have a spot where there's an ad or a break in your uh, first episode, even four years later, you can still sell that as an ad spot because if people are still listening to your podcast. Theoretically. Yeah. yeah. So you can go back into the, the file and actually lift out the old spot and put in a new spot. And that's dynamic ads. And that would have been great. We got an advertiser early mm-hmm. on, Frederick Arnold, who was a, a friend and a, a guest on Lost in the Stacks. And he loved the super context from the start and said, hey, I want to get in on the 
the ground floor and help you out. I think a record company was like the ideal advertiser for us too. Yeah. Like those were the kind of advertisers we were going for small independent media businesses that we could have a relationship with and that they sort of understood what we were doing and wouldn't be offended by the, I don't know, truth telling that we were saying about the business. So future Oak records um, did ads and paid for our web hosting for that first year, pretty much. In the gray estates. No, sorry, not the first year. I think they came on towards the end of the first year. It was the second year that we were mainly going between Future Oak and Gray Estates, I think. Yeah, well, we had a, we had a, a brief Gray Estates time, but yeah. it was nice. We connected with both of these entities in the ads and in social media and had them. They were kind of um, boosters. Yeah. And it was nice. It really felt like, okay, hey, we've got it. We know well, what we're going to do. And yeah. we never had another advertiser. No, but here's the thing. So the model that we were working on, what I really wanted to do was use traditional marketing, but in a community-based way. I don't think marketing is inherently bad. I think the way that it's executed is bad. A really good example of this is right now, every fucking commercial that I see on television is a commercial about how, hey, our company is really going to be supportive during yeah. this crazy time of the pandemic. You know what my You wife should calls buy those? our stuff. We got yeah. a sale going on right now. We know how hard it is. Your car is going to be even cheaper than ever before. You know, touchless, stuff like that. Touchless delivery. My wife says, yeah. oh, hey, look, it's another reminder of what we're trying to escape by watching television. Uh-huh. And so we didn't want to do that. And I had had bad experiences with branded advertising in podcasts and, and videos before. And I, I said, yeah, I, Obviously, like we want to have an ad based model, but we want to have a model where like we are actual partners with the advertiser and we're working together on this. And I think with both Future Oak and Gray Estates, it worked well. Yeah, we were never a big enough podcast to really make it into the ad game. No, and we'll explain why. Uh, so, and we talked about this in our very first episode, which was about podcasting. It's ironic now that we're doing this episode four years later. Uh, I didn't do research to contradict anything that we learned in that episode, but it's a different landscape for sure. At that time, for a podcast to attract advertisers, you had to have at least 50,000 downloads per episode. That was kind of like the general rule of thumb if you were going to get somebody. There's some there were apps like Acast at the time that would insert podcasts. So our idea was like we'll do what we're doing with Future Oak. Like we will do small business advertising. And that way again, we can show a network like hey, like w we don't have the reach to be able to pull Toyota in here or the Sci-Fi network, but like look, we can do this professionally. And like, we're writing the copy, we're working together with them. Like we're doing everything. We're being very professional about this. Um, then what we heard was in 2017, 50,000 downloads per episode started to change as a metric. And it started to become 200,000 downloads across platforms for all your episodes. Uh, and we, we didn't have either of those. Yeah. We were nowhere near that. We, we are still just, nowhere near that. Yeah, we should just point out at this point, this is the kind of um, Spotify buying Gimlet stuff. Yep. Like the money, uh, the podcasting is now a money thing. It's no yep. longer a DIY thing. There are still, Very much, and I think that that's a big lesson. Yeah. I, I was already exposed to that, but I think that was kind of a, a unpleasant awakening for you. 
there are still DIY podcasts, of course. There are still yeah. independent podcasts and people who are just doing it. But um, this space is now dominated by folks who are trying to, you know, get a million to two million in revenue a yep. year. Uh, but speaking of this point in time and all that, uh, we were talking about this off air the other day, but one of the only industries that's doing well right now during the pandemic is the podcast industry. And so there's a lot of speculation about raising ad ad prices and sales, et cetera. Um, but at that time, we had done the research. Only 1% of podcasts had more than 50,000 downloads per episode. So that means that of all those podcasts that when you go into iTunes and you look at them and you're choosing what you're going to listen to, only 1% of those had enough downloads to make money off of. That's wild. Uh, and, and at the time, this is 2017, that accounted for 4,000 podcasts. And so there not- were 400,000 podcasts. <laughs> yeah, it's not just the numbers that make it wild. It's just think about think about if there were... Um, 10 times as many television shows mm-hmm. and most of them weren't making any money and people were still producing them and putting them out. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of competition, uh, a lot of, um, it, it was difficult to get, to get people to even notice the show and know it existed much less. You know, I listen. think the only reason that we got as far as we did is because we had the mention of, um, super context on stuff to blow your mind because you were a host there and we had some um highly engaged motivated listeners Mm -hmm. check out christian's new podcast and then take us from there i think that we would have been i think that was a big help i I do think the show would have still grown organically over time but we wouldn't have grown as much as we did if it wasn't for me being on a larger platform like that and hey uh while we're talking out of school uh, <laughs> uh, when we did eventually do a serious pitch to how stuff works about jumping on board, uh, one of the things we were told was, well, we will do, I want to say it was $200,000 worth of in-kind advertising across the network. That was, that was one of the pickup points for new shows. So it was basically like, uh, we won't pay you $200,000 to do marketing. What we will do is we will play your ads as mid-rolls or pre-rolls on all of our other shows so people get to be aware of them because we have such a wide reach. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's not let's not get too deep in the weeds here. We pitched to a number of networks. We did our best. Uh, we tried to get picked up. We did not get signed to a major, minor, or independent label. Yeah, I uh, I spent weeks writing up a what what would you call it? It was a pitch document. It was a one sheet, um, and it uh, it said things like this: Super Context is looking for a network with which to collaborate to grow our audience and monetize the high quality content we put out consistently. We're a show that fits your company's mission with the highest quality of content that covers society, culture, and lifestyle. Our audience is curious about our topics and engaged with our show learning and growing through our well-researched episodes. Then I had a list here. You and I worked together on this, but it was like we envision here's some possible brand sponsors that Mm -hmm. we, we, we know that you'll be able to make money off of that would work concurrently with us. Basically we had to prove to these companies like, how they could make money off of what we were doing. Yeah. Consumers are suited to us and 
Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Comixology, Spotify, Audible, Shudder, TV, publishers, music labels. All of these people would be appropriate, quote unquote, appropriate advertisers for mm-hmm. us. We also talked about doing alternative models where we would reach out to advertisers directly and we would say, hey, we want to work together with you. It, it would almost be like Super Context was a podcast, but also an ad firm. And we would reach out to them about how best to advertise on podcasts and we would offer to write their copy for them if yeah. they if these small businesses didn't have marketing departments. And we did personas and we did a lot of strategy. And despite it not really being successful, I learned a ton doing this with you. I learned so much about how um, you can plan to advertise, how you can try to connect to companies and how you can think about your listeners and what you can do for them and what they can do for you. I mean, to be quite literal about it. Yeah. Um, if, if I'm being a hundred percent honest, which you must are be. in the, yes. the, the third person in the room, you listener, <laughs> uh, I am proud of how much we grew the show over four years, but I was continually frustrated by how much work we were putting into it and how little we were getting back from it. Yeah. Um, for that amount of work that like, I still feel like we were being incredibly professional and we were doing everything that we could to try to produce quality content and get it out there as much as possible. And still like the, the, the nature of the podcast environment right now was almost impossible to break through. Well, there was always going to be a podcast that was enough like ours that had a famous person as one of the hosts or as both mm-hmm. hosts that we mm-hmm. were, we were never going to be the best bet for a big company. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fair point too. In fact, even our sort of local scene, we were not, we were not the most useful promotional aspect, right? We were, we tried to do stuff like um, your colleagues at how stuff works. We tried to do like live shows. Like that's a huge, you did, you had so much experience with live shows with stuff to blow your mind we That's not to... fair. You you did a really good live show with Lost in the Stacks. Thank Way better so than anything I did with Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Yeah, but I only did one. That's really the key. Like, keeping all of these things sustainable yeah. is incredibly hard work. It is difficult. Um, And, you know, we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but then, like, I subsequently went to go work for a radio show that did all live shows. Yeah. And... I know how difficult it is to produce those now on a regular basis. So here's the point I want to make is that we tried to plan a live podcast show where it would be us as the opener. And then one of the how stuff works folks as the, the major draw. And here's the thing. They didn't need us to bring in live show audiences. And so it was never going to become the thing that they were striving for. It was always going to be the thing that we were striving for. Yeah, um, that's your way of looking at it. My way of looking at it is that uh, uh, we were partnering with people who just weren't motivated. Like it was just, <laughs> there was no motivation to do anything other than their job. Um, and we had, it, there were meetings and conversations. We Basically the idea was we were talking about like, Atlanta has all these great podcasts. We should treat live podcasts like indie bands in Atlanta and we should book venues and do like hundred person, 200 person shows where we do these podcasts live and make it kind of a regular thing. And it would Atlanta, Atlanta loves to pat itself on the back for being a media town. 
And uh, but there was not a lot of interest in this. Hey, Chris, is this the moment I should uh, settle you down or draw you back from the <laughs> precipice? Yes, please do. Um, the the next section I'm going to be a little bit uh, what what's the word uh, twitchy about because this was a bad time in my life. Um. <laughs> so Chris fucked off, right? Because uh, he got sick of Atlanta and everyone in it, including me. No, that is not <laughs> accurate at all. That is not accurate. That is not why I left Atlanta. It is not. No. So when you moved, that yeah. was a kind of make or break moment. Did we want to continue? Did we want to um, settle down? And I, I feel like we had a lot of conversations, not rancorous, but we had a lot of conversations that were kind of like a couple trying to figure out if we wanted to continue the relationship. Yeah. And we did. And so you moved to Portland um, to... Oh, you're, you're going to just jump over this whole other thing, huh? <laughs> to find a better way to live your own life. Um, why don't you tell me about it? All right. Um, I'm going to try to do this in a way that isn't just me being negative and spitting bile see, into a see, microphone. See, here's the thing, Chris. I'm trying to give you ways to just I know, mention it and move on. But I, I want to be transparent. Want. I want to be transparent with our audience. Okay. Yes. And Cause... so I'm, I'm keeping you from being able to just pour it out. All of these little tricks I'm doing is to make sure that you feel like you'd have to just sum it up and move on instead right. of building and building and building the pressure. Let me just start by saying this. The people that I worked with on shows at how stuff works are all great people and we're doing the best that they could. Uh, the company itself, I had a very bad break with, and it was rather unpleasant. I will try to summarize it very quickly, but essentially went like this. My wife and I decided to move to Portland. We came out to Portland and fell in love with it. We came back to Atlanta. I told my boss, I would like to move to Portland. Can I continue to record the shows from Portland, or should I plan to no longer work here and find a job in Portland? He said, don't worry about it. No problem. We have lots of other hosts who host remotely. You can totally move to Portland. It'll be great. Three months go by. The company gets sold to another. This is the like fourth big sale in the time that I'm there. And a new boss comes on. The new boss was also the old boss. He, he comes on and he and I sit down and I say, hey, just so you know, I had this conversation with the previous boss. I'm moving to Portland. I'm scheduled to leave in October. Uh, we are packing up. We are looking at real estate. Is everything still cool or do I need to start looking for work out there? And Always he said, a painful question to have to ask someone. Yeah. He said, no problem whatsoever. I can't imagine why it would be a problem. Another month goes by. I'm continuing to do stuff to blow your mind, brain stuff, etc. Uh, and I'm pulled into a meeting where I'm told, yeah, no, uh, you can't, you, you, you can't record remotely. It would just be too much work. And this was because somebody in the production side of things decided that it, it wouldn't work out. And I was gobsmacked because I was scheduled to leave three weeks from that date. Uh, and we Charlie and I had already worked everything out. Fuck, you and I had already bought half the equipment and were recording remotely in Atlanta already to test things out. Yeah. We uh, set up a remote home studio so quickly and so cheaply that yeah. it felt like when someone said, I think it would be too much work to keep you as part of the family here at the job, mm -hmm. you were made to understand that you were expendable and that they did not care. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
it grew worse because I said, well, shit, I have to stay in Atlanta now because I don't have a job in Portland. So we canceled our move. I stayed for another two months. During that time, some of my colleagues were upset on my behalf. And there was some conversation in the office around what happened. And that was when I got sat down and was told, uh, your presence here is is a negative presence on how stuff works. And we're in the process of trying to grow this into something big, which eventually, a year afterwards, they sold the company to iHeartMedia. They didn't want me around because I was like, I was creating a toxic atmosphere, they felt like. You were a malcontent. And they said, how do you want to handle this? Do you, um, do you want to you know, sever ties with us. Why don't you, and basically the way it worked out was like, I gave a six week notice. I left and then they had me sign. <laughs> I can talk about this now because it's, we're past time with it. And let's just be transparent <laughs> about this. They had me sign a document that said, I couldn't talk about anything that had happened or talk about anything about how they produce podcasts or work for any other podcast companies or media companies for a year, and they would pay me $10,000. And I said, well, shit, I have to move, and I am no longer going to have a paycheck. I might as well get that $10,000. So we go ahead with everything. We're now into winter of, what was it, 2017? No, yeah, 2017, 2018. And uh, I never see the money. And I, I start writing them and saying, like, so where's this money for me to keep my mouth shut? <laughs> and they start saying, oh, are you sure you really want the money? Because if you, if you do, you know, I don't know. I ended up going and working for a media company. I would not have been able to do that if I had signed that document. Um, and I moved across the country. But like it, it was a difficult period of time for me. And I, I still, it was the worst breakup I've ever had with an yeah. employer. You feel better? Yeah, we can decide later on how much of that we want to keep or not. The reason why all of this is relevant was because we were also in the middle of pitching super context to them again. And there was some like actual serious business talk of like, okay, well, here's what it would look like. Here's how we would pay you. Here's what kind of role you would take on, et cetera, et cetera, especially with me being in Portland. And so uh, when all this other stuff happened, that just went right out the window for super context. And so Charlie and I said, okay, like we got to do this on our own. We're going to do a cross country model. I'm going to move to Portland. We bought microphones, windscreens, boom arms we bought mixers eventually when we got out here we updated charlie's entire internet setup folks you have no idea how many remote episodes we recorded where like skype would skip out on us or we would have all kinds of internet problems until we did that yeah um we we use pretty basic software audacity which is free skype which is free and google docs which is free yeah you just have to pay your soul yeah, well, we sold our soul a long time ago, as evidenced by my long story. Um, when we first asked around to the people we knew who were working in the podcast industry, we were told, and I'm not going to say by who, that we needed to go buy a $1,700 codec mixer 
to be able to do what we were talking about doing effectively. That is totally unnecessary. I would say we were recording this show pretty good quality for about a year with, I think each of us spent maybe $150. Yeah. I mean, this, this setup that I'm using right now is $172 worth of boom pop shield and microphone, a audio technica 2020 USB plus or mm-hmm. 2020 plus USB plugs right into the computer. I record my side into audacity here. You record your side into audacity in Portland and I take the two files. I put them together. Yeah. I compress them. I mix them. I edit them and off they go. And, and I'll just throw out there, uh, you know, that it is highly ironic to me now that during the coronavirus pandemic, that all of those shows that I used to work on are now recording remotely um it's just you know it i what what was the word you used i was expendable yes okay we tried a few other ways to get the word out um about the show we did podcast ad sharing which was kind of a a minor clusterfuck i think and then it worked okay it just it wasn't it was a lot of work on our part and and not a lot of return yeah uh, you did a print ad. You put it out there. Um, mm-hmm. You did some uh, some Kickstarter stuff. Uh, it I was so that. yeah. So I I created a print ad and I put it in my comics and uh, shared it around online. But then I actually bought us ad space through uh, a Kickstarter that's how campaign. You funded a, someone's Kickstarter project mm-hmm. was get our it was idea. like pay us thirty bucks and you get an ad spot. And my understanding is that ad spot never printed. See, there's a lot, like all these sort of indie things, all these, mm-hmm. you know, handshake contract style stuff. It just takes one small miss yeah. and stuff, you know, and even things You have like, to be prepared, folks, for like yeah. a lot of things to just not happen. We yeah, a lot of failures. With a few like um, unorthodox advertising models mm-hmm. like audiograms, you know, one minute clips or one minute assemblages from the episodes that we could kind of yep. put out there on Twitter fun to make i don't really feel like anything happened when we started doing those or when we stopped doing them no and i've used those uh for other companies that i've worked for and they're okay you know some people get them and if if you have a famous person retweet them for you (laughs) yeah uh they do very well but uh if you just put it up for your regular listeners it doesn't really seem to engage people at all then we started our patreon and the patreon was uh a huge success compared to everything else we had done so far and was an emotional success, but it just didn't quite get us to the place where we wanted to, um, wanted to be, you know, and it effectively doubled our work too. Yeah. I mean, it was fun work, but yeah, we, we definitely burnt ourselves out by going to the Patreon model, doing our rewards as con content, but not quite getting over the hump. Um, mm-hmm. we did a lot of work on connecting with our power listeners, doing surveys, trying to figure out what people thought of us and what they wanted to support us with, what they wanted yeah. to get if they supported us. We hoped for a, uh, $1,280 a month revenue stream. We compared ourselves to some other podcasts who were making half that. Um, but then also some big podcasts were making, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a month and we felt Mm -hmm. like we could shoot for that mid spot we looked at rates for how much we were going to 
quote unquote pay ourselves um, yep. for our hours mixing, uh, mixing our hours working, me mixing, you researching, et cetera, et cetera, how much equipment would cost. We had plans to start getting guests on again once we figured out, like that was a big hit, not being able to do guests once we went to Skype production. Yeah. That was yeah. A, not a bridge too far, but it was definitely a like, uh, had to start from scratch. Yeah. And we had to learn. I mean, you had a mixer in the studio that you were using previously, but like we had, to, I had to get an actual mixer here, learn how to use it, learn how to set everything up and run the show. And also like the setup that we use for running the show isn't conventional in terms of like how everything's running in and out. Like one thing that's very difficult is like normally when you go to record stuff like this, you record the entire Skype call. I'm trying to record just my side of the Skype call, but also being able to hear you. And so yeah. I have to run one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different wires in and out of my computer in order to make that happen. Yeah. So that was the end of our sort of monetizing experiments. We got to Patreon. And again, I, I want to say Patreon was awesome. And the yeah. group of people that connected with us or continued to support us on Patreon is awesome. Uh, we just never got to, we never got to the heights that we hoped for. We, yeah, I, I think that the people who supported us have been so great about their support. The problem was that there just wasn't enough momentum with this show for us to reach the point where the risk of producing the show was rewarded. Yeah. And, and so it was it was tough to, to continue doing it because we were missing out on things like time with our families or like trying to work our day jobs on top of these things or any of the other creative possibilities. Attending that we to, to our on. mental health. All of that. Yeah. As as the world fell apart progressively more and more while we were doing this, too. Let's let's not forget that. I do like to point out <laughs> that. The four years that we've been recording this seem to have been the four worst years <laughs> of our lives. It does feel that way. Let's not, talk, a, not of our lives, but of the, the world while yeah. we've been alive. Let's talk about that momentum, though. Um, mm -hmm. So we, I think uh, we're, we're dangerously close or possibly have already started complaining about how it didn't work out. But let's talk about what yeah. did work out. Yeah. Originally, when we started 2016... Our six-week average download count was 269. Mm -hmm. By the time we finished, now, our six-week average download is 14,400. Yeah. So we expanded. I, you know, I think we did a lot of great work, and uh, we were cooking. And some of our most popular episodes, you mentioned Gravity's Rainbow and Infinite Jest, um, had almost 3,000 downloads for gravity's rainbow 2500 for infinite jest compared to episodes that did not get a lot of play that were still in the 200s oh man this downloads. is a funny list to find out these are the least popular episodes of super context folks the the least popular one is the tim rutilli one all my friends are funeral singers a whopping 234 people listened to that episode <laughs> um Raylan Givens, nobody cared about Justified, 243. The Chuck Wendig episode on Zeros didn't do well. 
the Prez episode. That was our, our inauguration episode. I loved doing that episode. Nope. <laughs> Happen Leonard and then the Yahoo Screen episode. Um, so when you look at the top ones, the things that people really seem the most interested in hearing about from us were, were books uh, or uh, horror stories. Yeah. I think the Chapo Trap House one is a little bit of a anomaly because I think some of their... Um, adherents found out about it and we're probably passing it around back and forth as we have seen there have been complaints on social media about the way we handled that show oh uh, not too many there were what Just two people who mentioned a things? couple people yeah yeah you know our our general feedback from people has been positive we've gotten a few like <laughs> nasty bad reviews or complete dismissals but most of the time people are appreciative uh, yeah, most of the time it's mu- it's very positive. Um, it, I mean, as evidenced by our Apple ratings, we're still 4.8 out of 5 on Apple out of 92 ratings. 92 people left reviews, and we're still almost at 100%. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Most of our listeners are in the United States, United Kingdom, and Australia, with listeners in Canada and Germany also being well-represented. Uh Almost everybody is an Apple Media listener, which I guess means a phone, iPhone listener. Yeah, or, well, Apple Media shows up a couple different ways when you look at your analytics. So sometimes it's either through the phone, or it could be if they're listening. Um, they don't call it iTunes anymore, but the the app, the Apple right, Music Apple app. Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts, yeah. yeah. If you're doing that on desktop, I think it shows up that way, though. Although our next most popular is, is people just listening right through our site. So... Chrome is pretty popular, so I suppose people are going to supercontextpodcast.libsyn.com and just hitting play. And our, our last little bit of, you know, what are, what are, what are our listeners like is uh, here are some of the listeners also subscribe to shows when you go looking in the aggregators. Lost in the Stacks, Pinchon in Public, The Outer Dark, Lovecraft Easing Podcast, Darkness Dwells, Decompressed, and a bunch of other academic, literary, comics, and horror podcasts. That's who we connect to. So I think, like, w- one thing I would like to say about how successful I think the project is, is that all of the strategies for the last four years that you and I behind the scenes have been trying desperately to make this business work with did work. Our numbers did go up. We did reach the audience we were looking for. But there were so many roadblocks in the way that we couldn't get the numbers up to where we wanted them to be. But man, like going from 269 to 14,000 is a, is a huge accomplishment. Yeah. Um, and the, the high quality of the ratings that we get, all that stuff, like I'm really proud of that. And then also seeing this, like seeing who like our related podcasts are. A lot of them are podcasts that I listen to. Um, or in some ways they are podcasts that are about the same size as us. And so it's, yeah. it sort of signals to me like, well, it, it, they're not really able to break through either and they're doing something pretty good over there. So like, it seems like in a lot of ways, the actual mechanisms of the industry are making it harder and harder to, uh, monetize a, an independent podcast. We For are sure. not Chapo Trap House. We are not, uh, Night Vale Presents. So who are we? We're two middle-aged, white, straight, cis dudes. And this is something that we've said on the podcast a lot. This is part of our mission is to acknowledge our frame, 
and not think of that as the default position. Yeah, and I think that there was no getting around that for two reasons. One is the stereotype that most podcasts are just two dudes in their garage talking about shit they like. and For too long. Yeah, for too long. And the other being that if we're going to work with the circuit of culture method, we have to talk about representation every episode. And that was something that I think some listeners who complained about that stuff didn't quite understand. They would say like, why are you bringing this up every episode? It's not necessary. We've heard you talk about it before. Why do you have to keep beating us over the head with the fact that you guys are white or that you're straight or whatever? And we did get some comments like that. Honestly, it was because of the model, because we had to talk about representation representation with regards to each artifact in order to fully understand the artifact. And I think I, I, I don't think I'm wrong here that like you and I learned a lot. I learned a ton and not in any sort of formal way either. I mean, there were a lot of influences, a lot of viewpoints, um, yeah. me too. And times up was happening, um, for the bulk of the production of this podcast, uh, fucking Donald Trump, was president and so every single argument that uh one can have in the face of that yeah was reflected in the podcast and uh you have something that i think you should ring the bell on this roars thing which also yeah. sort of came into our understanding of media artifacts yeah so cynthia ward and nisi shawl wrote a book that i read i guess about a year ago now that really helped me to think about how we approach the representation section of each episode. Their book is called Writing the Other, and it's about how to write people who are of different identities than you are as a fiction writer. But I think this applies in a lot more ways. And they, they came up with this Roars framework, which was consider the race, orientation, ability, age, religion, and sex of your characters. For us, it was considering that about ourselves, but it was also considering it about the creators that we were investigating or the characters that those creators were creating themselves. Yeah. Now, as you went through the notes, you found something that you wanted to bring up. Uh, I'm just going to read it here and I want you to explain a little bit more why you put it in and then we'll talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So Chris says, looking back at the notes, a lot of our episodes seem to be about confronting Charlie's ideas of masculinity. So tell me a little bit more about that, because I certainly believe that and want to talk about it, but I want yeah. a little more context to your quote unquote discovery. So the last couple of days, I've been going through the notes for every single episode that we recorded. I'm sorry. And, <laughs> and I was reminded of episodes that were pretty easy, I think, for us to like forget or put behind us. And there were a lot of times where you would come into a thing and be like, this is my favorite thing. And the end result of the episode would be like, oh, my God, this is the most toxic masculine piece of of work that we've ever encountered yeah and you would have to say yeah i'm like having a really hard time wrapping my head around this because this was such an important thing to me and yet now i recognize how problematic it is so i think you are overstating the favorite and the most toxic part but yes you're absolutely right that a lot of the stuff that i brought into the super context lens to talk about were things i had affection for or things that had been foundational in my yeah. upbringing and also i have a son he was born in 2014 and so uh once we got past the infancy of my son um 
I was really thinking about what it's like to be a man and to raise a man and to yeah. have been ris- uh, raised by a man, have been risen by a man. That sounds weird. Um, and uh, masculinity, more than anything, I think what I was trying to understand was where had I taken my models and where had I filled in the gaps of what I thought um, my dad gave me. All of that because I had kids and specifically because I had a son. There's no way for me to escape the fact that um, I am looking for an idea of what it's like to be a good person and that my ideas of being a good person are very gendered because of how I was raised. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. It was, it was inevitable. All right. Mm -hmm. That would be about confronting my ideas of masculinity. And I also think that, and I want to say this in a very particular way. I think that you take great satisfaction in looking at that kind of representation and that kind of struggle. That's something that really helps you I think both uh, feel like you are doing good work and also makes you feel like you've done good work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, for me, it is about it. Yeah. I, I think I had less of the mm, like built in programming maybe that you did. Um, but I am also recognizing how male a lot of my role models were and are and how to how to change that and how i mean honestly for me like all of this comes down to looking at the world through other people's perspectives so that you get a fuller picture of how the world works and what how to make it better um and it it was really easy i think for people with our identities to not do that for a long time it still is it still is and i think uh it you know we had this joke uh, about like half a year through super context and you were like wait a minute there's a stealth goal to this show and you, you're trying to make me a better person and i said no nah, i think it's like about us both trying to be better people and just to try to like understand the the world around us a little bit better and and uh not just be inside our own bubbles yeah and the reason that i joke that it's a stealth uh project to make me a better person is because I feel like the place where you feel the most comfortable with your progress, your moral and uh, intellectual progress yeah, is where I have not put a lot of work in. Oh, I think ideas about toxic masculinity and ideas about um, I, just to be blunt about it, like desexualizing. Yeah. Right. Sort of existence. Uh, these are both. You things. think so? I, I that's an interesting observation. I don't know. I feel like I'm still failing at that all the time. I that's fine. You know, look, you're a fucking mess, man. Yeah, you don't understand <laughs> exactly. yourself or other people. You. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, uh, this is back to one of our weaknesses is the other's strengths. You know, yeah, things yeah. that things that you have handled, I have not. Things that I have handled, you have not. Generally, mm-hmm. I think. And so uh, we encounter each other's flaws uh, sort of in our rearview mirrors. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, as much as there were some complaints about this section of every episode of the podcast, I think it was valuable. 
I don't think that we succeeded at it every time, but I'm glad that we approached it the way we did. Yeah. Uh, there is a section on regulation every time. It's yeah. very rarely thought about um, because because we don't live in a censorous uh, society. Um, we might yeah. live in a repressed or uh, offensive or taking offense society, but um, the regulatory powers of our government are much reduced. However, well, we would... yeah, they are, but also that's because a lot of the industries that we're covering self-regulate. Exactly. So that they can avoid get, having run-ins with the government. The one thing we would find mostly, I think, is when there were challenges to public libraries holding certain yep. artifacts. Yeah, we talked about that a lot. Um, there were other episodes where there was like occasional moments where things had to be edited out because of like tax breaks that media artifacts yeah. were getting. And so like a country or a state would say, uh, no, you can't portray us that way because we're, you know, giving you $10 million. So super context, the podcast has no corporate censorship or, you know, government regulation built into it, except that you and I have cut a few things out and we've ditched at least two episodes because of what was in it. Yeah. Um, that so might have been much more personal, but we well, have, they were just not good ourselves. listening. Right. Like we were both like, ugh, like that's not going to be fun for anybody to listen to. I do want, I think some of our arguments might have been fun to listen to for some people, but since we couldn't stand it, yeah, we couldn't put it out. What, and what were the two? I know Soundgarden was one of them. What Soundgarden, was the other one? Uh, the, it was actually one that we ditched in the middle. Okay. And I can't remember which one it was now. Mm, okay. And even yeah, if I, I could remember, I wouldn't want to bring it up because I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, for the most part, there's not a lot of regulation. It's just us trying to make the show sound professional. You know, like we we edit the show, which is one thing that a lot of shows like this don't do. Like Charlie goes back, he goes through, he marks where there are edits to be made. He listens through and cleans it up. Uh, it, it is shocking to me how often I listen to, to media shows specifically where people will just be like, hold on, let me look up something on Google. And then you, the listener, sit there while they type it into Google and wait. It's so it's, easy to find big gaps of silence too. Like that's yeah. the easiest thing to cut out. Um, man. Uh, yeah. I listened to another podcast that a friend of mine started three weeks ago and it was, the quality was so bad. And I was like. I'm not going to say what the yeah, show e is, but eject, I was just, Chris, eject I was just like, oh man, like it's not that hard. <laughs> so Chris, we finish each episode with a discussion of the identity posited by a media artifact or that it uh, sort of um, represents of its consumers and what themes exist within the artifact within its content. Yeah. So what do we have in super context? Well, I, I went, like I said, I went through all of our notes and I started pulling all the, the things that I felt like were threads that came together. And the first of these we've touched on already, our attempt to move from subjective talks about media, just I like this, I don't like this, to objective talks about how it was made and frameworks to frameworks for defining quality, yeah. really. And let me say something about this my original sense of the podcast was that it would be a subjective podcast that had the, um, uh, validation or credentials of research that instead mm -hmm. of, Oh, this is so cool. And I like it. 
it would be, oh, this is cool. And here are the pieces of it that are intriguing. And this is where they were coming from. And uh, I think that that was not because anyone was unclear about what they wanted to do, uh, meaning you and I were not unclear with each other. But this that was my kind of that was the thing I was going to take from it. Like, mm -hmm. I like talking about how much I enjoy stuff or how much I don't enjoy stuff. That's a oh, really... Everybody listening is aware, yeah. Charlie. Yeah, <laughs> it's a goddamn delight. And it's it's funny that you think that that's something that people would notice because I thought that that's what people liked just generally, you know? You think so? I do. Um, but I'm You wrong. think people enjoy that in general from podcasts, just like like other human beings establishing what their judgments are about things? No, I thought that people enjoy talking about what they like and don't like. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think that is true. Yeah. 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 But the more we did this and the more that you uh, tested me and tested me and tested me, Chris, the more I found myself working on the project, working on the, um, the assessment of things other than the personal subjective experience. So... Nick Cave came out with one of these newsletters recently addressing how he feels like things should be handled during the coronavirus pandemic. And I felt like it was really relevant to this section. So I pulled a quote out of it for here. He says, these sorts of ruminations like that we were making came from a more privileged and fortunate time when we had the oxygen to muse and to play now is the time to be cautious with our words and our opinions. So that was sort of how I was approaching the show, was that I felt like we should be cautious with our words and our opinions, and that a goal of the show was to move away from saying, uh, this TV show is good or this TV show is bad, to uh, assessing it based on some kind of, some kind of rubric, right? Like yeah. how, how things worked, um, because... It is so subjective to just say it's good or bad. And it, it's a thing that we have struggled with since the first episode up to the last episode. And still, I struggle with it every day in my life. Like we're, as Americans are just, it's so hardwired into us to have opinions about things and to let people know what our fucking opinions are. <laughs> so two things that came out of this debate um, is a concentration on authenticity yeah, both, both of the uh, media creators and of their uh, sort of posited identity themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of television mm -hmm. uh, as a really the television episode is a prime example of. Oh, yeah. Of where yeah. the idea of authenticity is separate from like, is this person authentic? But more like, is this uh, um, image and history of a media artifact? Is it authentic? Yeah, uh, I, I, this is another, it, you're actually going to segue right into the next uh, theme, but I think another big part of it was demystifying media. And and th there's a lot of ways in which mystical myths get built up around right. our media, right? About how things work. Even if, even if we've read all the interviews, we start imagining in our heads like, oh, this is what it's like. This is what it's like for that great genius to work on that record or that movie or whatever. Um, this is actually a great like um, circular segue because yeah, yeah, the role of authenticity and storytelling coming out then pulls us into demystifying media and talking about parasocial relationships. 
But in the midst of both of those, you and I had to confront and parse our attachments to certain media artifacts because of the time yeah. Yeah. that we heard them in for the first time or because mm -hmm. of who we thought we were because we consumed them. Um, especially when something that was a favorite and a, um, a comfort to one of us mm -hmm. was experienced for the first time by the other and a sort of reflected back like, oh yeah, it's fine. You know, not even a confrontational like, why do you like this? But more of a, oh yeah, this is good. I like it. I don't feel yeah. even remotely the attachment you do because I don't have strong opinions. Yeah. I'm not a 20 year old or yeah. you know, I didn't yeah. just break up with someone or it's not during um, a particular year or I'm not living in the right city, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's certainly something that I think is, has been like a stealth theme of yeah. the show that like it is obvious might have been obvious before we did the show but it's even more obvious now that you know your years between probably like your teens going through your your mid-20s are like your prime sponge years oh yeah for this is absorbing where the joke comes material for us. yeah creating identity for yourself and others around media artifacts yeah and the age of 18 to 25 for me is mm -hmm. the early 90s and sure. because of that, there's a bunch of completely, um, you know, like I don't uh, like coincidental, you know, trappings of media mm -hmm. that I connect to very strongly because they were superficial fads. You know, the sound of a drum or the uh, style of clothing or whatever. Yeah. And and then to have someone, my podcast partner, be like. Oh, look at this shit. Right. Mm -hmm. To discover that that's a challenge. Like that's a anger making challenge is a very interesting piece of media consumption. Be to because confront. for you, it was essentially invalidate. Like you felt like it was me invalidating who you thought you were as a person. Yeah. And, and it's funny, like we found a few, a lot fewer than me, but a few things of yours that you got touchy when I didn't yeah. connect to them you know, the way that you connected to them. And I think yeah. we both found, found the shape of that connection. Yeah. I think, um, one of the things that I've learned from doing the show is that it's good to interrogate those things for yourself because you're get, the shape is a good way to put it. That's a good metaphor. Like understanding the, uh, uh, weird force field you've put around yourself that you're like projecting out to the world of like, this is who I am. This is me, you know, and I am encapsulated by these books and these records and these TV shows and these movies. Um, and they're all part of that force field. It's fine to have that. Everybody has that. Everybody has an identity. You can't get around it. But knowing what the identity is that you're projecting and knowing how it comes across to other people, I think, is, is something that's good for us all to interrogate. And so the reverse of that is to... Um know that you're being presented with a self by yeah. people who make media. And this is going back to demystifying. Uh, we talked about nostalgia being a force, uh, even a weapon used by media creators mm -hmm. and um, how knowing how something is made, like the literal nuts and bolts of the craft can help you both enjoy and 
do some personal gatekeeping of media uh, that you wouldn't have been able to do before. Yeah, I mean, this is another thing that I had in mind built in from the very beginning, even from that very first pitch, was that this would be a show that had media literacy as its uh, like educational goal, like teaching the act of um, learning how to think critically about media on your own outside of the podcast, you know, when you're confronted with something. And, and I'll be honest, like, it's not something that anybody wants to do, right? Like, it's a lot easier to just let the thing wash over you and be like, ah, or, or conversely, uh, really relish in hating a thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, so I'll give you an example. Like, I just finished watching that TV show Devs, and I really liked it. And I'm like, uh, I should probably sit down and, like, read about what how it was made how it was received all this stuff like devs would be a prime super context episode if we were going to keep going but right now i'm not ready for that i need a couple weeks for it to, to just sit with it i think that's the key right the idea that instead of having your experience be fixed you should be able to enjoy a piece of media and then after that sort of first enjoyment fades or mm -hmm. you move on to the next sort of emotional connection you can return to stuff and find out how it was made and, and what its purpose was what the process behind yeah. making it was so that you can then either think about how you were affected by it or how you might go about making your own version of it you know we right talked about that, the that's exactly process it. so much yeah and it was never like there was never any single lesson there was never any grand unified theory of how to make things but to, to discover all the variations on how stuff gets made. Yeah. You know, yeah. And how people consider what their, works for people and what doesn't work for people. Their production. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was, I, I feel more equipped to experience things I love and things that did not matter too much to me. I mm -hmm. still, when I hate something, I still get like really into it and I still want to really dive in. But things that I used to just sort of dismiss, like I don't, I don't care about that. I now find interesting to experience and find out how they came to be. Well, and I think part of that is um, that doing this show gave us a clearer idea of what the actual working life of a creative person looks like yeah. rather than what we imagine it looks like. Um, because I think there's myths that were sold about how some people are creative. And then there's myths that we make up for on our own. Um, oh dude, just yesterday I watched this video and I almost sent it to you and it made me so annoyed. And then I was like, <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to pass on that annoyance to Charlie. That's not fair to him. Thank you. That's nice of you. Um, it was an interview with Ian Mackay by this, uh, music journalist called Nardwar. Are you familiar oh God, with this yeah, guy? Fucking stop now. Just, yeah. just sum it up and let's move on. No, it was just super frustrating. That guy was annoying. And the way that he was approaching the interview and how he was asking Ian Mackay questions was myth building. And Ian Mackay, as we've talked about on the show, is like one of those people who like rejects that myth building as much as possible and is trying desperately to be authentic. He starts off the interview by saying like, I would much more prefer to have a conversation with you than do an interview because when you do an interview, you're performing, you're not being yourself. And 
it, it was just so incredibly irritating watching that because the guy, I think Nardwar, from what I saw, like enjoys the myth building because he feels like he's a part of it. It makes him feel like he's a part of the fabric of culture. I, I do not want to talk about him. So <laughs> I will let people. So you find know who him. he is oh, though. God. Yeah. So I'll let okay. people find him and yeah, uh, don't please. Uh, Jesus Christ. It, that was my first experience with him. And I was like, fuck this. Okay, so we have to say this. This is a guy who has a, a persona. Nardwar is not his name. He is a, a made-up person performed by a journalist and sort of... Um, journalist is a real frust- loose term, yeah, too. And, and frustrated, I think, you know, yeah. celebrity. So the way that he gets away with being difficult and confrontational and, and sneaky in his interviews is that he does thorough, 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 thorough research. And so it's a very interesting, um, the theoretical, uh, you know, in, in practice, it's fucking annoying, but in theory, it's a very interesting way to try and dodge people's standard answers. Mm -hmm. They're sort of, Oh, Mm -hmm. I heard the word process in there. So here's my story. That's, you know, I provide in that moment, but also it's just a pain in the ass, both to, to experience and to, to think about. So. Yeah, I, I, he seems to be very popular. I don't know why, but that was my first experience with him. And it reminded me of exactly what we don't want to do on this show. Like, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, that is the opposite of super context. Well, not everybody is as afraid of conflict as I am. So, <laughs> which leads us to talking about five corporations, uh, the stacks, uh, and the stacks. This is, it's interesting. This is part of our, professional lives as much as it's part of our podcasting lives but yeah we have this like shadow podcast behind the entirety of super context which is about how large corporations make and track media how they figure out what works for people the ways that they have figured out how to um best design media yeah and how not to be um you know, so disoriented by the way that that media is presented to sort of mm-hmm. be able to use the tools that the stacks, Google, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, and Amazon sort of provide like, Hey, here's who you are. This is what yeah. you like to, to well, be able to use that without being overtaken by it. One of the things that I'm struck by too, is just that the it's, if anything, this does seem like the general unified theory, which is like, for some reason, through the system of capitalism, we only allow uh, five corporations in whatever sector to be the masters of everything, right? So like, there are five corporations in book publishing, but there are five different corporations in movie making that are very different from the corporations in comic book production, right? And different from the stacks and then there starts to be blurred lines between all of those yeah. you know and don't forget that the five thing like it, it's it's a little um it's a little bit of a conceit you know it's a, yeah no it's a human conceit yeah. sure like if you were actually looking at the economics of it i'm and sure you could say like you know there's percentage four of or six or yeah yeah Mm-hmm. But five corporations, both a Fugazi song and a good rule of thumb and the number of fingers on one hand, allow you to sort of say, like, how is it that 
huge, enormous corporate entities seem to drive what we find personally thrilling as individuals. Yeah. Yeah. And And it controls a lot of what's available to us. It's, it's not necessarily that they're, well, I mean, let's take, let's take a look at it from our perspective as podcast creators, right? I don't know what they are, but there are probably five corporations right now that are at the top of the pile for podcast networks and that are controlling a huge amount of that industry from our perspective, not being a part of those five corporations. The story that we're telling you, the audience, this episode is that it was incredibly difficult for us to break in below that. Um, And even despite how aware we were of all of it, even, you know, um, and, and I think we saw that with some of our artifacts, right? Like some of the things that we looked at were produced by the five corporations and subsequently had the ability to be more successful or less successful because of the constraints that were upon their con- creators. Whereas other things that we looked at, comic books, uh, had less restraints on them, but boy, was it hard to get anybody to read them, you know? Yeah. So we learned a lot about how many people consume, enjoy, and consider various types of media. And we learned that uh, a really important comic book uh, or graphic novel maybe doesn't really make it into the American mainstream at all. Mm -mm. Yeah. Um, Which led us to doing a couple episodes that were about media companies themselves. And you mentioned the Yahoo one already. We also did one on Gawker. We did one about Paste Magazine, and we did, oh, the Hugo Awards was kind of one of these as well, just more broadly talking about an award system. I I liked doing those episodes. Like, I felt like I was learning stuff, but uh, as we've mentioned before, there were people in the audience who were like, what is this? I I don't want to hear about this anymore. And, uh, and then there were other people who more recently reached out to us and were like, yes, please do more of this, you know? So... I think it just depends what you're looking for. Maybe our maybe our focus was too wide with super context. Well, there are times that I wonder if it was just a comic book podcast, you know, if it would have been more successful. All the things that we're saying are themes that are, arose like maybe we were doing trying to do too much. Maybe we were trying to jack of all trades and we were yeah. master of none of these because like I was feeling like we were getting to the end of the list and then I scroll Oh my God, notes, And there's more. No, so there's so much. Here's stuff that we tried to deal with. We were thinking about the politics of America and global politics in the wake of Donald Trump's election. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, we are both on the left side of the dial. It was a traumatic experience for both of us to have Trump become president. And, uh, but it also was a, a rewarding and enriching um, time of of contemplation of our own politics, of our own assumptions, um, mm-hmm. of trying to understand the other side. Because if you don't understand the right side of politics, then it seems absolutely ludicrous that anyone would think that Trump could be the president. But if you start right. looking at how people have been um, understanding or handling you know, the past 10, 20, 30 years of American politics, it becomes uh, surprising, but not inconceivable what happened in 2016. Yeah. And I think to, I, I think that like, it's easy to 
pin the blame on Trump, but it's not just Trump. I think that the last four years and even leading into before that have been traumatizing for people in this country on both sides. I think everybody is yeah, just even exhausted folks who feel like and their side one are traumatized. Mm-hmm. And it has been one thing after another, whether it's a political thing or a protest or this massive pandemic quarantine that is, you know, it, no one has experienced anything like this in any of our lifetimes. And we are all going through crisis together and trying to fucking understand it. And I think you and I were lucky in that, like, we went into that crisis having already set up this system of support for each other where it was like okay yeah we're going to talk about a movie this week but also like this is going to help us understand a little bit better just what the hell is going on because it seems like the world is in total chaos yeah we started to find clusters about different things like in uh, here's one example that we can use uh you started to really sort out how you thought about the military and Mm -hmm. people who were um active members of the American military because we yeah. we have a cluster in our media artifacts. Uh, you found the list. Generation Kill, The Hurt Locker, Sheriff of Babylon, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene. Taking these all together and letting them feed on each other in terms of how we thought about things uh, in the episodes changed how you think about folks who serve. Yeah, it's given me a very different perspective on it, um, which I think I probably talked about in some of those episodes. You know, I growing up as part of like a counterculture, I just automatically had the response of like, fuck that. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And most of the people that are involved in it are bullies and violent and they're not in it for good altruistic reasons. And as an adult, just in general, I've slowly learned that that's not true. I still disagree with a lot of the policies of our military, but the human beings involved in it, you know, there is middle ground to have and discussions there. And those artifacts that we talked about on this show really helped me uh, wrap my head around some of those things, but also to see some of the faults as well that are like inherent in the institutions of the military. Um, There's a couple of things on our list that I want to just hit before I come back to what's actually next on the list. So Mm. this podcast talked a lot about creators owning or working for hire in terms of their work, their IP and the um, sort of uh, the use and reuse of, of stories and characters like comics obviously is a big piece of this, you know, talking about people writing Alan Moore's characters after Alan Moore wrote, um, you know, old characters in the comics universe and how those are the same and different and how people's reactions to them um, are very different and what it says about what we imagine ownership is in terms of entertainment. Yeah. I think, I think most people don't think about this at all. Like in terms of where these things come from and who owns them and how it all works. I think they just watch the things they watch or read the things they read. Um, and I think even going into this, I think you and I had very different ideas about what actual ownership of a creation meant versus being a freelancer who was working for hire. Um, and so a lot of these episodes were sort of dispelling the myths about both of those things and sort of providing some reality of like what works, what doesn't work. For instance, like there are plenty of work for hire creations that we've covered that 
worked very well, you know, despite what you would think. Yeah. Uh, and there was lots of creator owned things that didn't work. It's not, it's not necessarily a good versus bad equation. And to go with that, we did some, uh, exploration of fandom and, uh, corporate guidance of shared universes and mm-hmm. continuity and mm-hmm. comics and movies obviously are where that really hit. But, um, I got, there's a, well, there's an outtake that I used at some point where you said, this is, this is your fandom. Yeah. This, you can't resist, but to talk about where the, the, um, influence of Westerns on samurai films or samurai films on Westerns come from and thinking about how, how we represent the, um, the larger genres or larger, um, shared universes that we enjoy yeah. became a part of how we explored, um, artifacts in super context. Yeah. I was thinking about that, that moment that you just mentioned actually, because when we started off the show, you would say oftentimes like, I just don't get any of this fandom stuff. Why are these people so passionate about this stuff? Why do they have to be such jerks about it, et cetera, et cetera? And then as we went along, it, it became obvious, like you have your own fandoms too, and you engage with those fandoms in similar ways to these other people. It's just that your fandoms aren't, um, I guess, like as visually upfront, right? As like the Marvel movies or uh, Game of Thrones or something, right? You're not dressing up like uh, a Lee Child's character. Yeah. I, I don't know if anybody does. I, I'd I'm love sure to there hear... are plenty of people who do. <laughs> do you think that there's Jack Reacher cosplay out there? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. I want to move on now to the big hit at the end here. Because I think there's two things that combined are really important. The question of why horror yeah. and mental health and social media these are things that we really explored in super context. Um, at the beginning of the run here, I was a lapsed horror fan. Mm-hmm. I, um, I get very spooked very easily. And so I was ditching a lot of stuff I used to read. Like I read Stephen King and I watched horror films, slasher films. Um, and I read a lot of weird fiction and then I just stopped and I think part of it was because of so much sleep deprivation from having kids. Um, my brain was just waiting to freak me out with whatever it had uh, in it when I was up in the middle of the night in the dark. But as we explored horror texts, why would you consume this became a thing that I asked you and you asked yourself over and over mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. And there are like three big ideas that came up out of our our work yeah there's a couple like this is a thing like an ongoing project for me now like i think coming out of super context this is going to be a thing i'm going to work on at some point i want to write a big piece on why horror for myself but yeah you've you've got a couple of them here and one of them uh is using grant morrison's terminology that he used in uh both the filth and nameless which is Preparing for real life horror by inoculating yourself with the fictional ones. Yeah. And this is something that not every uh, mental health practitioner is going to agree with you that, you know, having um, fantasy traumas in order to prepare for real traumas may not be the best um, uh, practice for mental right. health. But it is something right. that horror seems to um, uh, fulfill, a desire that it seems to fulfill. 
And on top of that, this is something that came from Stephen King and, and also comes out of some other people's sort of theorizing as to why we enjoy horror. Practicing or exercising emotions and thoughts that are not acceptable. You yeah. Know, like people, Stephen King refers to it as sin eating. Yeah. People think it's great that you feel love. They think it's great that mm-hmm. you feel pride. Um, but you have to practice feeling hate and mm-hmm. um, feeling shame. Right. You don't just to feel that only when life inflicts it upon you can make it so that you cannot handle it. So, I mean, from my perspective, reading about other people and how they're handling the coronavirus quarantine, this became super obvious to me that like one, because I'd experienced real trauma and two, because I indulge in experiencing fake trauma. through horror (laughs) fiction that I was more prepared emotionally for this than my peers. Yeah. I had a friend, uh, Oh, it was Dave Moore who was on our show. Dave, when this all went down, Dave said, yeah, I kind of thought about you and I figured you're going to be fine during all this. (laughs) Like this will be, this will be fine for you. Like being in isolation and like the, the, the actual traumatic stuff, like you'll be, you'll be okay with, but there are a lot of people who it's not right. Like, Folks who probably were like, I don't want to watch a horror movie and wanted to look on the bright side of things every day. And then something like this happens and it's almost disabling. Now, that brings me to the weirdest, but also most um, convincing idea of why horror Mm. is that if you're a person who can stand it, then horror, weird, speculative fiction can give you the the mental fuel you need to burn the the rocket of there's more than just this material world there is magic yeah. and wonder and amazement and things things not thought of in your philosophy out there and uh it seems like god why would you use you know creatures from space and and uh the thing with no name and vampires and werewolves to give you that kind of idea. But for some people that is the joy of horror is that there's more than just every day. There's more than just the drag. Think about it this way, right? Like it prepares you to understand that there are shocking perspectives outside of your own that you're not, you're not being exposed to. And yeah, in the movie that might be a werewolf, right? And that doesn't seem particularly relevant but then it connects back to like the research that we've done on on representation and diversity and that like well if i am more likely to understand the werewolf story and be okay with that then in the real world i might be more likely to embrace the perspective of somebody who doesn't have the same lifestyle i have i might be more prepared to deal with challenges to my identity yeah and finally, mental health. The super context was about our mental health in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I don't really know where to go from there. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, I think again, like it comes back to this thing that, like, if I haven't said this already, I think of super context now as like going back to grad school. Um, it feels like I spent the last four years getting a customized PhD in this 
that uh, I'm sure I'm sure there are media theorists out there who would say, oh, no, trust me, you didn't. <laughs> but for me, it was a, a lesson in critical thinking and a lesson in being exposed to texts that I wasn't exposed to before. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, too, it involved stamina, you know, in the same way that like getting your Ph.D. does. Um, but the mental health aspect of it was sort of like the world is really really traumatizing right now and exhausting and it gave us something to interrogate that with you know it could have been something very different i'm sure there's lots of other podcasts out there that have been running for the last four years and are using an entirely different framework for that but um we started this show in the middle of the general election and the election happened what six or seven months into our run and then the last four years have been us just trying to process that every day and and recognize the sea that we swim in the entertainment yeah. and social media um environment to and, the point that you have pretty much burned all your bridges with social media yeah and uh and i like it like that it's uh, the more you think about how you're consuming stories and the more you think about how you're consuming fragments of stories, which is what social media is, mm. uh, the more I think you'll want to control which ones get in and which ones stay out. I think it also helped us to be a little bit more media literate about interacting with social media. I mean, I think both of us already were, but sort of questioning like what am I getting out of this and then the rhetoric that other people are using social media for how is that being targeted at me and or how is it uh, making me more or less stressed out right um, and what kind of strategies are there to prevent that you know I'm still engaging with social media more than Charlie does but I have so many convoluted rituals about how I engage with it. You wouldn't believe it's like, I'm like some friggin' druid off in the woods somewhere, like cutting myself before I look at Twitter. <laughs> you know, Jesus like, Christ. <laughs> like I have all these rules about how I look at it and how long I'll look at it. And bef before I will allow it to uh, taint me and um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think we were both aware of that. We were both like social media savvy before this. And now we're both kind of like, ugh, you know, like this is, yeah, this is a tool like any other media communication tool, but it is in a lot of ways making us unhappy. So Chris, this brings us, I think, to our send off, our sign off. Um, I think of it as the big finish. I want to ask the question, how have we both changed and what mm -hmm. will we do next now that we're finishing super context? Uh, I have become a more thoughtful consumer of media and I have become more open-minded in terms of uh, ethics, values, and aesthetics. And yeah. I like that. I've also become much more tired and and much more just sort of exhausted with how things work in the world. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how much of that was super context and how much of that was, as you just said, the last four years, but that those are the two big changes I have found um, in my life, looking back over the run of the podcast. How about you? 
I mean, I think we addressed a bunch of them already, but like one of them looking back on this for me is being aware of um, my relationship with trauma, both real and imagined and like how I use that going through life uh, and how that informs who I am and being conscious of that in my interactions with other people. Um, I think a huge thing for me, I, I was already leaning towards independent media and creator owned media. I am even more in that camp now than I ever was before when we started this show. Um, and, and it's, it's really important to me to keep things independent in the sense that the work that I do in the future, I will begin it as independent. If somebody wants to come to me and say, Hey, we like what you're doing. Maybe we could work together. Sure. I'll have that conversation, but I'm not going to do what we did for the four years chasing after people with deep pockets and asking them to help make our day job come true. Yeah. Speaking of, here's what I'm going to do now. I am going to uh, lean into the options that exist within my professional identity to play around in this realm. I have for so long had like podcasting and, and this um, sort of critical culture, right. Mm -hmm. As something that I've separated out from my job as a librarian. And uh, this is the main part of it. That's unsustainable for me, you know, like I need to do this work within the work time that I have yeah. you know, available to me and, uh, and take back sort of my personal time, my family time separate from work. So, uh, we may see in the future, um, academic articles from me that use a little bit of this circuit to mm -hmm. assess things in library world in information science and in, uh, academic communication. Yeah. Oh man. That is something that is sorely needed is <laughs> research articles about how academics communicate with each other. It was something I toyed with as an idea when I was getting my master's degree. And I thought, you know what, like you would immediately burn so many bridges. So many people would be pissed off at whatever you wrote that it's just not worth it because you wouldn't graduate. But it is something that needs to be interrogated. And what will you do next? Well, I had a plan and then this all happened. So I don't know if that plan is going to hold true or not. But what I'm going to do next is focus more on my writing, my fiction writing specifically. Uh, I am working on short stories and I honestly, the last four years, because I've been spending 10 hours a week on the podcast every week, I've had less time to make comics. And so I had my comic output has been a lot smaller than it had been previously. So I want to get back into that. I want to get back into being a patron to myself. Um, meaning that the money that I make from my day job will go toward my fiction writing hobbies, you know, publishing those things, putting them out in physical form, running more crowdfunding campaigns. I have an idea or something that could be a combination comic book fiction podcast but it's frankly years away from happening um so those are the things that i'm going to focus on but i'm going to try to treat them the same way we treated super context with a business model but not with the approach of how do i turn this into something 
that, uh, you know, is, is monetarily successful, but more in the sense of, you know, how am I tracking and assessing this thing and making sure I'm getting the most out of it as I go along? You've been listening to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How it's made and how it informs our everyday culture. Our theme music is Human Factor by Mile Marker. And right now you're listening to Drive Fast by Three Chainlinks. Show notes and all our past episodes are available at supercontextpodcast.libson.com. You can email the show at supercontextpodcast at gmail.com to tell us what you like, what you don't like, and to suggest topics for future shows. And I'm available on Twitter as at Christian Sager. And I'm there at Bennett Radio. Two N's, two T's.